Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. And then you're looking at the remains that have not been looked at before, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's been talking about these based off, you know, oh, when were the tombs closed? How did they relate to the deposition and all this kind of stuff? But we have the skulls, some. Mm -hmm. Some of them, And so it's like, let's actually go look at them and Mm -hmm. see what they have to tell us Mm -hmm. about this debate. And so you were able to go conduct research on uh, the skulls um, in... Was that at a specific university or? Just yeah, they're at the University of Cambridge. Cambridge. So, okay. got some Cambridge. Wait. So the ones that I looked at are in the Leverhulme Center for Human Evolutionary Studies at the University of Cambridge. Mm. There are some in the Natural History Museum at mm. London. Mm. Uh, but when I was conducting my research, all of the collections at the Natural History Museum were closed yeah. for access. They were doing, I think, they were doing renovations okay. of their storage facilities. So you got um, to go go look at the bones. Mm-hmm. And so, what were your in layman's terms, because we don't want to confuse, you know, obviously everyone, but what was your your findings? So, um, interestingly, so I did find some perimortem trauma. So, again, perimortem around the time of death. What is interesting is that some of that trauma could have caused death and some of it could not. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you can have an injury and... Perimortem describes the interval while bone still has its moisture content that you have when you're alive. Mm -hmm. So everybody thinks that perimortem is just, if you have a perimortem injury, it's just when you die. It's actually not the case. It's shortly before death because healing starts pretty quickly. It didn't have time to heal. But if it didn't have time to heal, it's still perimortem. Or shortly after death, when your bone still retains its moisture content. You gooey. (laughs) 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 But the problem with the perimortem perimortem interval is that it varies because if you're in a super dry climate, that perimortem interval is going to be different than it is if you're in a rainforest. Well, your bone will probably leach. Yeah, or a bug. I mean, it's different everywhere and it can depend on a whole host of factors. So that's what's interesting. My in my when we go back to the desert, you're gonna say what happens to the desert? It, the the moisture leaves your bones very quickly, yeah, and because your body desiccates, it dries out really so fast. Any in that that idea then? So if you're something happens perimortem, so mm-hmm. around your time of death in the desert or a drier area, it's going to be very close to when you died versus maybe somewhere wetter where it could have been further and time in the tomb. Yeah. So you can't always tell, but if a body has been allowed to decay and then moved, mm-hmm. what you'll lose first is a lot of the really small bones, like the distal phalanges at the end of your fingers. Mm-hmm. And then if it's allowed to decay longer, um, you'll lose like the limbs, right? Mm-hmm. Things that easily detach. So the fact that the photographs and the notes seem to indicate everything was present in mm-hmm. these burials um, suggests that if they were allowed to decompose, they were probably not allowed to decompose for very long. Plus, you get things like rigor mortis setting in, and some of these bodies seem to have really been stuffed into coffins that were a little bit too small mm-hmm. to that for them, hmm. which is harder to do. Like, you, there's certain 
points when during the, the decay body that you can do you that. Do that yeah. yeah, so, so you can either do it right after you kill well, right after, or you wait till rigor mortis has passed, yeah. and then it gets soft which is again. then they're gross. Then the body gets soft. Well, yeah, but it depends on your definition of gross, I guess. Like then. two days, it's less, less, less. usually, yeah, okay. usually. Um, but yeah, so it seems like killed they and then were kind of put inter pretty, pretty not certainly not. It has been proposed that they were buried somewhere simply like as they died naturally yeah. and then whenever the king died the bodies were moved and that does not appear to be the case because if they weren't wrapped tightly you would lose bits and if they were wrapped tightly you wouldn't get the body positions that you end up seeing so in, people like, are really trying to prove that the king wasn't the one dude gaslighting the whole we really state. don't like to admit that human sacrifice is a feature of many human societies over time and space we but, really hate to admit that right to us Human sacrifices, like huge no-no, never would volunteer for such things. Mm-hmm. It has to be coerced because how else would you get people to do that? And yeah, but it lasts for over a hundred years yeah. within the first dynasty. They allow it to happen. One, it's across culture, like it happened. In so oh, many and cultures cultures around the world. Yeah, like obviously around the world, it had a purpose of yeah, you know, of functioning. So then, what did you find with the skulls? And how many skulls? Yeah. So I was only able to look at forty-eight which are from the funerary enclosures mm-hmm. of two kings and a queen. Um, those are all that remain from those burials. There are some more, like I said, at the Natural History Museum, uh, but these ones were the ones I had access to um, out of hundreds, originally So there's hundreds. more you can look at? No, they were mostly destroyed. Um, destroyed? What do you mean? Like thrown into an incinerator? What no, 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 no. Thousands of years of reburial and looting oh. and then the pseudo-archaeological excavation. There was even, in fact, even the ones I looked at, the excavator records that he packed, I forget how many, a whole bunch up for transport. But, oh, only 48 made the trip to England. Only 48 survived. So it's an artifact of thousands of years of disturbance. Right. Into m- mummy paint. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, the thing is, is... They just didn't care about bones back then. They didn't really care. Um, they mostly wanted museum objects. Um, yeah. And it's also funny that the other that weren't in your study are at the Natural History Museum and not at yeah. some other museum, which is a whole other discussion That's about... a whole other conversation. ...what human cultures get put into that museum versus well, art museums. Those and, and whether art work should be on display at all. Well, yes. yes. I had that as a question, and I was like, do we want to get into that whole argument about, like, I was going to say, like, you know, in a lot of your reading, a lot of your work, mm-hmm. you know, excavators in the past, dubious treatment of the human remains. Yes. Again, not just to, like, shit on them, but we know better now. And so, obviously, when you work with remains in the field, you obviously, mm-hmm. I'm sure, have, like, protocol and oh, yeah. how to, like, work with them and stuff. But, and then, because of how they treated them back then, it affects, you know, the study you could do. And yeah. you have this very kind of disparate data set to work with. And yeah. how do you, you know, it still has something to tell you and something to say and contribute. But then it's like, oh, like, if only it had been done differently. <laughs> if and, only. You know. If only. Yeah. yeah, and there's the huge debate going around of whether or not human remains should be even on display at all, how we should display them. We can't get the ancient Egyptians' consent, mm-hmm. right? So then who And then you who add owns, colonialism into yeah. it so that you have the Europeans, in this case the British, taking bodies of people of Northeast yeah. Africa, mm-hmm. putting them into a museum ostensibly yeah, for display weird, at some like, point. mummy unwrapping events yeah. that people would mm-hmm. pay for. That's yeah. icky in our sensibilities now. Yeah. 
but apparently these things are actually still happening. I saw something fairly recently where people were paying to go to an event for like a human dissection. Hmm. That someone had donated their body to science, a person of color, and they thought it was going to go to science, but it was end up being used in this live dissection that people were paying money for. And obviously people got upset and were like, this is not right. And they were like, well, no, it's for educational value. And it's like, yeah, but people are paying tickets to see. That's a and, power dynamic, though, yeah. now. Yeah. And people get all upset about the Body Worlds exhibitions. Yes. of the guy, mm-hmm. the that German like, guy who plasticizes like, all the bodies yeah. and cuts them into slices like, and puts was them was on like horseback. Or something. They were using Chinese, Chinese yeah, convicts or something awful. Yeah. Super big ongoing <laughs> yeah. debate about if this is okay and what, how we should treat human remains and... But your skulls, your 48 skulls, were, like, in a storage area. Yeah, not on display. Not on display. Yeah. Yeah. They were in a storage area. And you Um, measured them? What did you... um, I measured them a little, but the the primary analysis is sort of observing different features, recording things like toothware or, you know, evidence of pathology, evidence of trauma, uh, which I did find on a few cases. Um, So what kind of... What trauma... Are you seeing? So I found some examples of skull fractures. Um, interestingly, not what you would expect from smiting. Yeah. So these are often, a lot of times in the literature, the discussion is, oh, we have all of these images of the pharaoh smiting, right? So these yeah. are and that's Pharaoh holding an enemy by the head, taking a stone mace of yay big and smashing that grapefruit down on somebody else's skull, smashing yeah. their skull. And this They're is what big linked yeah. to sacrifice, right? People see, yeah. oh, there's human sacrifice, and then we have images of smiting, and they're like, ah, this, this is yeah. what was going on. Yeah, and that from from the evidence I have, those are absolutely not related. Yeah. Um, I think ideologically, they're completely different. In addition to the fact that the data doesn't support that. So the, there are different types of fractures you can get on your cranium and if you were actually smashing someone's head with a huge stone mace you would expect a very serious depressed fracture to be just crushed there would be all sorts of little pieces i mean those stone mace heads are huge um that is not what we're seeing in fact um i'm so what i saw in general was linear fractures so usually one long line and what's interesting is based on the forensic literature these are serious Now they are not always lethal, Mm. but they can cause brain hemorrhage, Mm. but they are usually caused by a larger object with lower velocity and lower force rather than a smaller object wielded with great force. So the in the forensic studies, like crushing, so like putting somebody's head in a vice and crushing. Not even like that. Like so, the forensic examples are like someone fell and hit their head on a floor. Yeah. Okay. So or like a board or a car window. Oh. Rather than a club, uh, so something okay. flat, right? Wide. So very different, very different ideology, very different formation of the injury, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. But I think also, even if I didn't have that evidence, I think ideologically smiting is very different because yeah. smiting is all about the king demonstrating his dominance over people who threaten Egypt, right? And he so, doesn't want to bring them into his burial. No, yeah, no, yeah. no, absolutely not. Why would you bring chaos into oh, your burial? No. Yeah, yeah, this is very much a, I'm defending Egypt, whereas sacrifice is much more, sure, you may not have wanted to die, but at the end of the day, there was some level of honor accorded to you because you're buried by the king. Mm-hmm. You know, you get grave goods. You get a grave stealer, probably, with a name. You might get a coffin. Maybe you get to serve him in the afterlife, which right. is still probably better. Maybe gig. your family would benefit. Maybe yeah. your family would benefit. This is not, I'm crushing a criminal 
you know, to get out of Egypt. You know, this, this is not that. This is very, very different. And I think that's why we don't have really solid pictorial evidence for human sacrifice. You would never show it. Totally different. Mm -hmm. Totally different. It's meant to remain invisible. It's meant to be different. And there are examples that people say there's a couple scenes that people say could be human sacrifice. And maybe they are. Yeah. Stabbing labels. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't prove that with the available evidence because we don't have the rest of the But it also seems to be that there wasn't the way in which people were killed wasn't hard, right? It could oh, be, yeah. It seems maybe hit in the head, maybe yeah. something to their, um, just their flesh that doesn't yeah. leave evidence on the bones. Matt maybe, Adams thinks it was cyanide. Maybe I poison. It. I don't know how they were yeah. cyanide. Um, I don't know how they would source cyanide either. I am not an apples. I'm not a chemist. I have no idea. Apples. I mean, there certainly could have been poison involved. I think one of the most surprising things that I found was the variation. Yeah. Some people have trauma. Some people don't. Maybe some people just naturally also died when the king died. So you can be like, let's put those in there. Possible. Although if you're putting hundreds of graves together, it seems rather unlikely you'd get too many people happen to die on that day, but it's possible. Um, But I think that also speaks to our human desire to make things fit in nice, neat little boxes. Mm-hmm. So if it's human sacrifice, it must be a huge amount of violence yeah, and bloodshed. Yeah, we're picturing the lined up and they're going yeah. and like hitting each of their heads yeah. and like pushing them into a hole. Because we've yeah. decided that's what human sacrifice yeah. is. And yeah. that's a very, now we are projecting our views of what we think sacrifice is thousands of years into the past on a very different culture. Yeah, maybe if it was more of a, you volunteer for it, you got to choose the way you wanted to go yeah. out. Well, pick different ways. There were cultures in South America who would voluntarily, as far as we can tell, mm-hmm. um, send their children to be sacrificed mm-hmm. because it was they, the, the families received a great deal of honor, a great deal of prestige. Um, it was, you know, these children were taken up into the mountains and also award, rewarded. You know, um, children were believed to be more pure and have yeah. a closer relationship to the gods. Um, so I think assuming that I, I read a really interesting quote in a book one time that said, violence is something that we all think we know what it is and mm-hmm. we all agree on it. And yet if you actually drill down into it, what actually does violence mean? Because if you're going to talk about physical harm, okay, so if an animal attacks you, probably we agree that that's violent. Mm-hmm. What about a virus? Mm-hmm. Right? That's still a living organism yeah. attacking you. Mm-hmm. Um, what about a random accident? Right? You're still Yeah, we always dead. really set on intent. Yeah, yeah. Like, and oh, the lion meant to try to kill me. Yeah. But well, and that's, or there's a car accident. No one did me. We yeah. punish based okay. on intent. I think the interesting thing about violence is that we don't want to admit that we've separated violence into what's acceptable and what's not. But we have. Because if mm-hmm. you break into my house... Mm-hmm. And I feel threatened and I kill you. Now I'm not self-defense. Okay. You are still dead. If you break into my house and kill me, that's murder. Yeah. But I am still dead. So at the end of the day, someone is still dead, but we've decided that one is just and one is not. One is self-defense and one is not. And you could come up with millions of modern examples right now of this exact same mindset. And I'm I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but I'm saying we have separated Violence, even though at the end of the day someone is still dead, and we've yeah, decided as a society that one is okay and one's not. But given the skull evidence that you have, you mm-hmm. could argue that the Egyptians were also rather ambivalent and concerned on this point, and probably wanted to create a death for these wealthy elite 
people, Mm -hmm. lower elite, high elite, whatever, that wasn't as awful. It's something you could willingly walk into, maybe not painful. Mm -hmm. You're not getting a blunt force trauma on the back of your head. Unlike the smiting scene where maybe part of it was fear and like suffering. Yeah. That's the intent. You're meant to suffer publicly. You don't want the person to have like a long, painful bleed out or something. It's a mass agreement for everyone to veil what is actually happening. Yes. Well, and I think there's a couple things behind that. First of all, if you're taking people into the afterlife to serve you, you do not want to destroy them because they can't serve you if the whole point is they come into the afterlife to serve you. They need their name. Right. Their body. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the other side of that is that, so we don't have any evidence or at least really solid evidence for this practice, right? Mm -hmm. But these people are definitely dead. (laughs) Some of them were definitely killed or at least bashed on the head. The other thing is that, you know, we don't have a lot of good pictorial or literary evidence for this practice. And one of the things that I argued in my dissertation is that there is some ambivalence towards this in ancient Egypt. And I think we see that in the Mm -hmm. fact that they don't want to record it but they know that they need to send people into the afterlife to serve the king. And at the end of the day, the only way to enter the afterlife is to be dead. dead, So one of the things I argued was, okay, well, they don't want to talk about it because you have to make this transition. Sort of happens that you have to kind of sort of die. Sorry, guys. And so this is just a necessary step in this process, in this ritual. But we're going to kind of veil it after that's not the... Because we're not super sure we like great this. stuff. So we're yeah. going to like, just do it. But then like focus on like, oh, you're going to the afterlife with the king. Yeah. yeah. So happy puppies. So and maybe not everybody me, loves it. It reminds me of animal mummies. Mm-hmm. This is thousands yeah. of years in the future. Mm-hmm. The only way to take your ibis bird, who is dedicated to Thoth, and to put your prayer into it and send it to the realm of the gods is for the animal to be dead. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that if you are going in and buying the ibis to have it mummified, to put into a special coffin, to be deposited mm-hmm. in a certain place, to get your prayer answered, is to kill the animal. Mm-hmm. That's sacred to a god. That, that is yeah. sacred to You're a like, god. Oh. And there are archaeologists, Lima Crumb among them, who find little kittens who are sacred to Bastet or whoever with little necks that are just snapped all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's incredibly interesting that 3000 BCE they were doing this. And at 300 BCE, they were doing this. And it was this long span of time of an understanding that you have to physically send something into death to get an action that you need. You have the you have to have the action of killing that yeah. you veil. That you don't talk about, you hide, you wrap it in bandages, you put it in the ground, you put it in an enclosure wall. Mm. That enclosure wall is a thick thing that you can't you can't see through. You might be able to hear noises out above it, but you you veil even the ritual itself. But the act is what it, it is meant to go to the next realm, go to the gods, and, and yeah. that's what it is they're doing. And maybe even that the act needs to be something kind of traumatic or violent oh, for I it to work. I agree. Because if I it's easy, it then it doesn't if it's easy, then anyone can do it. And if, if yeah. you, there's no like power in it, but it has to be something that, oh, no, we're going to kill your kid. It's going to really upset you. But, you know, oh, no, it will get is, us this. In my opinion, you can disagree because it's your area of expertise, but this is dark magic in, in a way mm-hmm. that is meant to evoke feelings of mourning that are over and above what you would give for one dude. As you put it, this one dude is dying and to create mourning that is amped up. You are 
forcing your community to ball their eyes out because you've just killed their the first born died, son. AKA also your kid's dead too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that when the king is dead, long live the king, we're all going to go through some shit and yeah. we're going to do it together. And it's going to be an emotional thing, but like we're all going to, it is like a cult, but states are cult, cult-like and the formation of a state is gaslighting ourselves. That's how it works. Yeah. That's how it works. Do you I mean, disagree or is that crazy? <laughs> I don't disagree. I think the way I look at it is also, at the risk of sounding terrible, a masterstroke of political power. Oh, yeah, I agree. Right? Because totally the agree. other thing is yes. that what we don't know is when and how was it decided who gets to die? Yeah. So is this something that, like, your whole yeah. life you know you'll be selected and you're just waiting for the day the king dies? Yeah. Or does the king die, like the successor <laughs> is like, surprise, guys, yeah. guess what's happening? I don't like you. You're but, dead. Yeah. You're alive. Good talk. It's like you that know? institution we were just talking about, which is not UCLA, where we're <laughs> like, oh, I wonder what this institution is going to do to me today. And yeah. it gives that institution an extraordinary amount yes. of power over your psyche, your well-being, your emotional state on a given yeah. day. And that's what this yeah, is. You don't know yeah. if you're ever safe. Yes. It's yeah. visible power. And even if, so this is the other thing is that here we are at Abydos, right? So it's. In those days, probably most people had not been to Abydos unless they lived nearby. But even if you don't know the site, even if you weren't there, yeah. that's hundreds of people disappearing every generation or so yeah. for six generations. And people are meant to talk. This is meant yeah. to be spread through the grapevine of high elites to tell each other that yeah. this person has been selected, that person not. They've been given the glory of going with the God King to X, Y, or Z. And, and that manufactures power. And a lot of those burials are outside the enclosure walls. They were mm -hmm. not hidden. You know, maybe the ritual was. The, the that we actual don't know. sacrifice. The actual, actual sacrifice yeah. could have been. But the burials, at least from what we can tell, some of them are outside yeah. the enclosure. And those this are the new ones that are found by the Abydos team now. Uh, some of, Even some of the older ones. Mm -hmm. Even some of the older ones around the funerary enclosures. There's the enclosure or the remains thereof. And all the burials around the outside. Yeah. You know, this isn't a, at least from what we can tell. A super secret, you'll never find their burial place. They are marked. Some of them have grave markers. You know, this is meant, this is a visible display of quite literally power over life and death. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So as you guys have been hinting at, it's not, it goes on for a couple hundred years, but mm -hmm. it doesn't last for, you know, Egyptian history is thousands of years long. It's just this, it's bounded within these early kings. Why did it stop? So that's a, that's what we see as a or pattern. Or what replaced it. Ah, well. If we're arguing, like, it's function. Yeah. Functionally, I think much later, so maybe these aren't causal, but functionally, what I see as the successor is Shabtis. So later in Egyptian history, we get mm -hmm. these little figurines. They're called Shabtis or Ushabtis, and they're little servant figurines. And they are buried with the deceased, and they often have a spell on them that basically says... If the deceased has to do any work in the afterlife, you little Oshapti, you'll say, oh, I'm here. I'll do it instead. Yeah. Um, so I think functionally speaking, that is a successor. Whether they're directly related or not is hard yeah. to say because there is a big gap in time between them. And they're, But they're Old Kingdom servant figurines. Yes, baking there are. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think functionally that's a successor. What I think we see in a lot of societies, because a lot of societies practice retainer sacrifice, mm -hmm. almost always, again, at the beginning of a state with the imposition of a new leader, a new ideology, and then it, it dies out at some point. And what we tend to see is that once the point has been made, 
the scales are tipped where it's no longer economically feasible mm-hmm. to keep losing a whole portion of your population. Um, or or people get upset. Or do it anymore because yeah. it's been done. Yeah, I mean, I think... So it's like just the threat of it itself is enough? Yeah. And in the first dynasty, I mean, think about what's happening. We have all these disparate groups that ruled themselves, some of which were quite powerful. And now there's one king who mm. says, I'm a god king. You all have it's to do what I say. It's established. Yeah. 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 And I, what, like, if you're going to make all these other groups listen to you, one of the most effective ways to do that is to take their people and kill them. Does but you see this. No. 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 Which is interesting because, no. like, arguably he did not have control mm-hmm. over no. the entire Egypt. But he couldn't go back to that. But, I, yeah. It tends, so this type of sacrifice tends to die out at some point. In part, one of the arguments is that maybe people just kind of said enough, you know? Yeah, like, this isn't and sustainable. you do see a rise in elite power. It's really hard to prove because, again, you often don't have records of this kind but of But you thing. see this in Egypt, again, to bring up the mm-hmm. animal mummy kind of thing, but the long durée, take fourth to fifth dynasty. Fifth dynasty kings are like, we would never build a pyramid like that. We are not going to rape and pillage to build this big giant mountain of stone. We are priest king. It's like an administration saying, we're not like the past administration, Mm -hmm. right? You want to differentiate yourself in some way. And it's also a closed society versus an open society. One could also argue, like I do when you're going from the 21st dynasty to the 22nd, that or from the 4th to the 5th, that you have a very closed, kind of inbred society and then the next dynasty comes along and, the, and they're like, we're different. We are including more people. Mm-hmm. And to include more people, they have to display to more people and they have to present themselves in a different way. Retainer sacrifice isn't going to fly. A big pyramid's not going to yeah. fly. And super mummification of the 21st dynasty, you don't need it anymore because no one's going to see it. So you, you, all of these things change over and time with that shift in administration. Maybe the easiest way to set yourself up for success is to denigrate the past. Yes. Right. And yet use it at the same time. Yeah. Like, Oh, we're not going to do that crazy sacrifice anymore. Like you're my elite. I love you. Like you guys remember how horrible that was. Remember that I'm better. Like I'm I'm glad you have me. Like I'm not going to kill you. Like, (laughs) but we all have the same system and remember it. Remember, remember it. (laughs) Always. I'm not going to do that. Right. So you use it. It's a carrot and stick immediately given to you by the previous generation. It's very, very close. It is harder to convince people to slaughter a whole bunch of their own population. So there is a certain level of, I mean, a lot of the research I did involved, how do we create groups of us and them, Mm -hmm. right? And there's always a process. We will always do this as human beings because we love to categorize. But once you start setting up an us and a them, now you're in opposition to that group. And now that group is lesser or able to, you know, it's okay if we persecute them because they're lesser. Um, and, and once you've established that group, society tends to be a little more willing to let those people be treated yeah. differently. But if it's the inside. Yeah, but we do it inside our own society all the time. Yeah. We always create groups within our society that we've decided are lesser, even if we don't talk about it. Yeah. So these are servants, retainers, people who are, of, they're of high status, but low enough. That I mean, the identities are so complicated. We could pick anything, right? It could be you are from that area. That area is rural. No, yeah, you're, you're definitely from less. Egypt. You know, I mean, think about all the ways we define identity now: gender, skin color, geographic origin, yeah. accent, all the different ways that we decide how we sort ourselves into yeah. categories. 
Without even talking about it. Without even talking about it. It has more power if we don't talk about it because then we can pretend it's an innate Mm. category. Not there at all. Right? And that we didn't create it. I'm always amazed by how much power is in how few actions. How many kings of Dynasty One were there? And Marnath included. Like there would be nine actions, like eight or nine sacrifice actions. It's not many. There's like six or seven. Six or it's not many. Yeah. Less than ten. Yeah. Less than ten big sacrifices that we know of. of. And maybe they happen at Sakara and Abydos, but those moments in time Mm -hmm. are they I I think they were remembered for hundreds of years and that those moments had such an impact on the psyche of of these people mm-hmm. that they, it lasted in, in the cultural memory. I, I would say through, throughout the whole long term of it, how they, how they would have recorded that or would they have passed it down by mouth? Would it have been Talk verbally about, kept yeah. that kind yeah. of story? I don't know. Um, but everyone knows that a king well, gets to take his people with and him. And then Abydos gets linked with the tomb of Osiris. So it yeah. becomes almost like this God's yeah. necropolis and stuff you know, this thing that happened so long ago and Osiris is buried and yeah. all these other connotations with the site. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of stories have power. Bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. Really. There's a ton of bang for your buck. Well, this as, kind of action. Yeah. And especially when you consider the first evidence we have for possible retainer sacrifice is aha. And there's a lot of debate because apparently there's no evidence for trauma in those. So we don't actually know how they died. Yeah. But this is the first example we have. And that's, I think six, and then we very quickly ratchet up yeah. to where you have Jet, who has like six hundred, yeah. almost six hundred, and then you very quickly fall off. Yeah, it's to so where at the end of the dynasty, it's like it's like five. Kind of a little it goes something. up with Dan a little, and it goes way but say, down. Like, but it's like so, like it's such an Egyptian phenomenon. Like you know, you snapper with his little pyramid, and Khufu's like ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. extra, and yeah. then just quickly, and then it's gone. Falls. Yeah, I mean, it's just for, like the second person, it's like the first person has a little, it a little bit, and then the second person's like. To the extreme, yeah. and that's yeah. just done. And then it's done. We're done with pyramids completely. We can't do it yeah. again. But with human sacrifice, so many Egyptologists are like, why would they do this? They would never do this. In my opinion, as a social historian, it's like, why would they not? That it's a, an action of such power that if you abuse it or do it too much, immediately its power is completely lost. And people then roll your eyes and they're like, we're not doing that shit anymore. And you have to come up with a new game. This has a limited power, kind of like just going out as an army commander and thinking you're going to take over a huge swath of the world with all of your violence, it will not work because you won't win hearts and minds. People will come so at you. Leave, they'll rebel. Yes. And, yeah, there there is, the there is a price last. to pay for this dark magic, if you will, that is very effective mm-hmm. politically, but the price is a very short, it's short and long-term benefit simultaneously. But you can't continue the practice. The practice must stop. It is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And it's not just economically sustainable. No, I mean no. in an ideological way. Yeah. Yeah. This ideology must be done in a punctuated manner, and then it must be stopped. Mm-hmm. And it must be stopped in a way where the king can say, I'm not going to do this to you anymore. You don't need to do this. Yeah. This is, I am the good, I am the good king <laughs> who will not do this to you anymore. I would never. And that... That, that action of mercy is a part of this. And I guarantee you that we cannot see it in your bodies. Yeah. What we uncover, that that mercy was the chief thing on display mm. when the king was sacrificing these people. And it's a manufactured mercy. Oh, yeah. But 
that's what states are all about. That doesn't make it less powerful. Yeah. That it's manufactured. Yeah. 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 So super interesting. You have some articles coming out on the topic. Um, yes. A couple of press forthcoming. So yeah. you want to know more about human sacrifice, uh, keep appraised of your academia page. I'm assuming you'll put yeah. everything on. And I have a couple of book chapters that should be coming chapters out. chapters coming out year. and stuff. Yeah. Find out more. I don't think anyone else is really work, working on this topic. So have people are talking about it but i don't think anybody else has looked at the human remains which yeah. is a that, that's kind of the kicker really cool um yeah that's the difference and you need some grant money to do, I do the isotope <laughs> we need isotope analysis because the amount that could be found out with isotope analysis yeah. is a whole shit ton it's so amazing um i so also anyone wanna, yeah. wants to give money yes. to isotope analysis yes, please. Us up. that would be amazing um I would, that was, I would love to do that because we could learn so much about where these people grew up, where they came from, were they local, were they brought yeah. in for this sacrifice, you know, and we can't always tell, but that would add a really interesting element to this whole concept of where are you obtaining your sacrificial yeah. individuals, you yeah. know? Where are they are related they to each other? Are they right. eating the same things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So That'd be cool. I would love to do that. But that's the next step. Yes. The research. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yes. that's good. So you also are the co-founder and executive director of Paleo-Oncology Research Organization. Yes. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So, so Paleo-Oncology is the study of cancer in antiquity. Um, cool. So a few years ago, uh, some colleagues and I were talking. Um, we all are bioarchaeologists. We all study human remains. And one of them had a very aggressive form of cancer, very young, in her 20s. And we were all talking about how interesting it was thinking about sort of the impact of cancer on your body. And I should clarify that this colleague is alive and well and cancer-free. She's doing great. So I should clarify that this is a happy story. Um, And we were thinking about, you know, with our expertise, with our specialty, what was the experience of cancer like in the past? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the popular misconceptions is that cancer is purely a modern disease brought on by unclean living and cigarettes and all this stuff. And it is absolutely true that doing things like smoking will contribute to your pos- your, your likelihood of getting cancer. That is but absolutely sitting around true. a campfire could do it. Sitting well. around a campfire could also, I mean, they found evidence for cancer in fossilized dinosaur bones. Multiple examples. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, the thing, part of the, part of the thing we wanted to do is understand how cancer has changed over time because most of our modern knowledge of cancer actually comes from about a century or two. And if we actually looked at thousands of years, we could get a lot more information about how, I mean, there's multiple forms of cancer, for example, how they manifest differently under treatment. If they're not treated, how how you see them in the remains. Um, But the other thing we wanted to do too is because of this idea that cancer could be caused by a lot of modern things. There's also this sort of culture of shame that mm. I think is really toxic. Fault, where, yeah, and oh, if you just lived cleaner, if you'd mm. exercise more, that you wouldn't get cancer. And those things are good for you to do anyways. You should eat cleanly. You should exercise. But that doesn't mean you won't get cancer. And I think heaping shame on people because we think we are acting as though their lifestyle choices contributed to yeah. cancer is not actually productive for Or anyone. living in a city versus living yeah. in a Yeah. It's kind of just something that's been with us since... It's well, been, it's been with this, animals. Yeah. Like, or even for pre- millions of years. Animals and yeah, exactly. So it it was kind of twofold. So we, we formed this nonprofit. Um, we have a website that we can put in the show notes. And um, 
we all work with other specialists and doctors and other specialists to kind of study cancer in the past, but also spread that information to a normal audience who isn't specialists, right? Because it's really hard. Most people have been affected by cancer in some way, if not you, then a loved one. And it can be really hard if you go looking for that information to find something useful for the lay person, to find something that isn't shaming or talking about different choices you should have made. Yeah. Um, or we're all super, about fighting cancer. Or like yeah. With all these yeah. Yes. So one of the things we really feel strongly about is educating the public. Like you should be able to tell your grandmother, you know, the, the history of cancer and how it manifests differently. So um, we we have done some workshops. We've done a few lectures here and there. Uh, we put together a special issue of a journal. Um, we started it while we were in grad school, so mm-hmm. it was quite the learning curve for all of us. None of us had ever run a nonprofit before, so yeah. um, we're still very much learning. But it's something I feel really passionate about because yeah. I think we've all been affected by cancer, if not immediately, then tangentially. Yeah. And I think it's really important to get rid of that culture of shame and instead have a productive conversation about, okay, let's talk about how cancer has changed over thousands or millions of years. And that's part of being alive. It's part of being alive. And there are... the longer you live. Oh, yeah. And that's part of why cancer seems so much more prevalent now. We live live a lot longer. And we have better treatment for a lot of the types of cancer you get younger. So instead of dying very quickly, you survive to potentially get another form of cancer, which sounds like a terrible downer. Um, but we are also learning so much more about how yeah, to treat cancer. How to, to Yeah, we catch it much treatments. earlier now. Look at things like the HPV vaccine. There are so mm-hmm. many things that we are learning that we didn't know 50 years oh, ago, yeah. even 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think if we want to expand our view to look at thousands of years, we can have a much more productive conversation yeah. about that. Yeah. Super interesting. So what's kind of next on your research plate? You're done your diss. Yeah. Was there something that came up while you were working on your dissertation that you were like, oh, I really want to like work on this next, but it doesn't fit into the dissertation. So I'll kind of put it aside and work on it later. Are you working on another aspect of the dissertation or just got to work on the book? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yes. So so the advisor says, I know, it's horrible. No pressure. For a series of articles. For a bioarchaeologist thing, series of articles is actually ideal. I have several articles in in process. Um, (laughs) Are you like going to switch, you know, like, oh, I'm done with human sacrifice. I want to look at something else totally different, totally. So I have other side projects I'm doing anyway. What I would love to do is actually the isotopes and look at the other human remains that weren't accessible during my Mm -hmm. dissertation. Oh, yeah. Because I think what would be really interesting is to get a better – we have so few individuals, right? 48 is not that many, and we have so little information because we only have the crania. Yeah. If I could get the isotope and start talking about, okay, now let's really construct as much as I can of the life history of each of these people. Yeah. I think we could have a lot more interesting conversations about, mm-hmm. okay, why were these people selected and not others? You know, and granted, it's an imperfect data set. And I think that that is part of working with archaeological remains. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It means your data will always be yeah. limited, but that's, that's okay. That's all archaeological data. Yeah. I feel like in a way. You're yeah. Like, all have, telling stories with incomplete data. You never will have everything. Yeah. I usually yeah. describe it to people as basically being handed a puzzle with yeah. no idea what it's supposed to look like. Well, thank you. This was really fun. Thank and you. I had a great time fun. reading all your work. And we've been friends for so long that like, I've never read <laughs> any of your articles. <laughs> 
That was That's fun okay. to get yeah. into it. Um, but thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you for having our me. This first, was really, oh, thank you. First this guest. was so much fun. You are our first guest. It's yes, so great. We get our award. There's pressure's on all the others. Three chairs. Yeah. And, and chairs Gordo has short hair. Yes. It's true. So, I love your short hair. That's yes, so true. pretty. I yeah. really like it. Switch um, up things. It's very, very cute. We hope you enjoyed. And yeah. this is? This is Afterlives with Kara Cooney. And Rose Campbell and Jordan Gelsinski. So, yeah. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review and help raise our profile and let others know about it. Send your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the video version of the show on my YouTube page and full show notes will be posted in the podcast section of my website, karakuni.squarespace.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books, upcoming lectures, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Karakuni. <laughs>